Good evening. Good evening. You're all extremely welcome. I'm delighted to see so many people here uh, tonight. Uh, the Ronald Syme Lecture is one of the major events in Wilson College's annual calendar and indeed a major event for all Oxford University's classicists. As most of you here will know, Sir Ronald Syme, the legendary holder of the Camden Chair of Ancient History at Oxford, was an extraordinary fellow of Wolfson from the time of his retirement from the chair in 1970 until his death in 1989 at the age of 86. The college has maintained a distinguished tradition of the named lecture in his memory and has benefited hugely from the great classical library he bequeathed us, which has been added to by the acquisition of the Colin Wells Library, making Wolfson, with its cluster in ancient world studies, one of the key Oxford centres for classical scholarship and research. When Ronald Syme died on, the, on September the 4th, 1989, it was, as Professor Fergus Miller observed in his obituary, just three days before a party which Syme was very much looking forward to in celebration of the 50th anniversary of his most famous work, The Roman Revolution. Professor Miller went on in his obituary to note that, quote, if the mention of that time span were to give the impression of a long period of gentle decline, nothing could be more false. Syme's last book, The Augustan Aristocracy, had come out in 1986 when he was 83. His two-volume work on Tacitus, published in the 1950s, has been in use ever since. His essays in Roman papers have been seminal, but it's probably above all for the Roman Revolution, generally thought to be one of the most important and most entertaining books on Roman history ever written, that he is most remembered and cited. So it's especially pleasing and fitting that our Syme lecturer tonight has chosen to return to that book and consider it afresh. There's been a very distinguished series of Syme lecturers during my time here as president. William Harris, Susan Tregiari, Averill Cameron, Dennis Feeney, Andrew Wallace Hadrill, and Walter Scheidel. But none so far have chosen to concentrate on Syme's work itself, so that's one reason for being particularly pleased to welcome tonight's lecturer. There are a number of other reasons too. Professor Christopher Pelling, Oxford's Regis Professor of Greek and Fellow of Christchurch, is very well known to many of you here. His publications on Plutarch and history, Greek tragedy, historiography, Herodotus, literary texts and the Greek historian, and his editions of Plutarch have been extremely influential. His latest book, co-authored with Mariah Wyke, Twelve Voices from Greek and Rome, Ancient Ideas for Modern Times, provides a brilliantly lucid and readable introduction to and new view of great classical authors, from Homer and Sappho to Tacitus and Lucian. The book came out of a BBC Radio 3 Open University series and begins with the assertion that classical literature is a vehicle for thinking about our human condition. That clear and moving statement is characteristic of Chris Pelling's work. He's one of the best, most sought after and most accessible and welcoming of classical communicators in the land, reaching school children and the general public as well as students and scholars. And however well you think you know Chris, he is always surprising, inventive, witty and original. I know this personally from having sat for many years at the other end of the long table of delegates to Oxford University Press in the Clarendon Building. As the extremely long list of books is presented every other Tuesday morning, you would often see eyes glazing and covert snoozing going on. But when Chris Pelling's turn came around, everyone would perk up. There wasn't an obscure monograph or a collection of essays he couldn't make vividly interesting for everyone in the room. And in personal conversations with him about our shared interests in life writing, I've always been struck by Chris's remarkable gift for making the ancient world come alive and by his generous appetite for sharing and exchanging knowledge and scholarship. So I'm delighted that he's come here today to talk about the rhetoric of, in italics, the Roman Revolution. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Hermione, and uh, those uh, delightful Tuesday 
Tuesday mornings as delegates are a great pleasure for me to remember as well. Many a uh, subversive glance has been exchanged down the, 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 the table between uh, me and Dame Hermione and sometimes not bitterly shouted down the table more than glances <laughs> as, as, as well. Uh, it goes without saying that it's, uh, it's a privilege and a presumption to, to give this lecture. It's even more of a presumption for me. Uh, I'm sure Sir Ronald would have forgiven me for being predominantly a, a literary person rather than a proper historian. Uh, his, his own love of literature, particularly his love of the sound of words, is, is so clear, I think. Um, he'd even have forgiven me for being uh, mainly a Hellenist, I think. His own British Academy lecture on the mastermind uh, was on Thucydides. But what really have strained his indulgence was the fact I spent so much of my time on ancient biography. Um, his antipathy to biography is well known. It's there in the preface of a Roman revolution, uh, first chapter actually. Um, at its worst, biography is flat and schematic. At its best, it's often baffled by the hidden discords of human nature. Uh, it's there in Tacitus. Uh, it's still there in the final years. Uh, biography is so much easier than history. Describing, for describing an individual life, no problems of structure need arise. Hmm. Uh, it is such a pity that an accident of generations precluded his time at, at Wilson from overlapping with the presidency of Dame Hermione. Uh, you can just imagine uh, what it would have been like over dinner if the word biography came up. You really could have sold tickets for that. Uh, uh, but perhaps those uh, happy years at, at Wolfson, or, or Wolfson as he called it, uh, did soften him a little. Uh, he was also at work himself in those last few years on something uh, that looks very much like a biography, uh, one of Julius Caesar. Although, oddly enough, in 1980, only a few years earlier, uh, he'd declared this to be quite impossible. But still, 40 pages of what are preserved among his papers. He had, had a healthy advance, it's fair to be said. Um, the jury is still out uh, on uh, whether the, the Roman Revolution, published uh, just four days after the outbreak of war in 1939, um, is his greatest book. Many people, many good judges, would say that Tacitus, 1958, even greater, been the most influ more influential, perhaps. Uh, but there's much less dispute over placing Roman Revolution as his finest piece of writing. That's the reason I've chosen it for, for literary analysis today, to apply, in fact, uh, the sorts of techniques of literary historiographic criticism uh, that we've come increasingly to apply to the ancient authors themselves. Let's see how it goes. Uh, and none of that is, of course, meant to downplay what's most important about the book, uh, that it's a really brilliant piece of literature as well as of history. Uh, brilliant history as well as literature. Um, I'll be most interested, in fact, to see how that's a false antithesis. You can even mix them up, as you see, uh, and to, to look at the ways that the style, the narrative technique, reinforce the interpretation and make it persuasive to the reader, actually make history intelligible. And it's also uh, masterfully done, uh, but it's easy to forget that this is a young person's book, a young man's book. Uh, that's doubtless also a matter of uh, knowing, seen it all, seen through most of it, uh, voice that he adopts. Uh, he was in his early to, to mid-30s when he wrote it. It was between 1936-1938. He was a fellow and tutor of Trinity College at the time. Uh, I'm very grateful to Trinity's archivist, uh, Claire Hopkins, um, who's here tonight, for, for helping a creative reconstruction of those years at Trinity. I'm very grateful also to uh, Liz Baird and Ellen Rice for uh, help, especially in putting on the display outside. Uh, he was a, uh, one of a group of Trinity Fellows, where at least the young ones, mainly bachelors, um, in fact, four of the 14, I think, fellows at the time were required to be unmarried. And they clearly got on rather well, admittedly um, often at the expense of the older fellows, with whom they didn't get on quite so well. Uh, the younger ones often went out to the pictures after dinner, which is rather pleasing, I think. Um, they certainly liked subversive humor, again, at the expense of the senior fellows. Uh, there are snippets of mischievous verse, that circulated among them. They suited Syme's own taste for uh, impish parody. It's uh, actually traceable in his later years as well. Uh, the older Tommy Hyam regarded them indulgently. Uh, there's a nice parody of his own, of these uh, fellaheen, as he called them. Uh, and on the, the door of the, the Syme equivalent in this, this parody, uh, there's a, uh, the, the ancient historian has a notice, creative work in progress, Eintritt verboten. Um, when one enters, um, uh, you find out that the work turns out to be a recipe for, is it, Krutbanyab Luka, 
which is a complicated Yugoslav dish. And in conversation with Brian Ward Perkins uh, many years later, Simon said, yeah, I, I did have that. <laughs> I've just been traveling in Yugoslavia. Uh, and there's a, a cartoon as well of uh, these uh, fellaheen uh, throwing mud, as you can see, at the, uh, the senior fellows there. This, again, is from Trinity Archive. Uh, rather nicely, there's a butler down there just coming in and saying, how many for dinner tonight? Um, uh, we think that uh, Syme is probably that one. Um, uh, actually, the stance does remind me of uh, a little of what I remember of Syme in, in his um, elderly uh, years. In the Roman Revolution, though, the uh, subversiveness is often at the expense of the even more precocious prodigy, uh, the young Octavianus, as he called him um, rather, rather archly. Uh, he talks of that name, possessing the sanction of literary tradition. Um, well, it didn't really. Um, in fact, Octavian uh, was regular in English language treatment. Syme himself had talked of Octavian and Antony as late as an article published only two years before. So that's part of a mannerism of the book, in fact. And Octavian, uh, the later Augustus, uh, still received rather romanticized treatments in, in many British versions. I uh, suspect that a rather hero-worshipping chapter in the Cambridge Ancient History, first edition of the Cambridge Ancient History that uh, came out in 1934, uh, was particularly in Syme's sights, in fact. Um, but Syme wasn't the first to describe Octavian and the, the growth of Octavian uh, with something of a flavor of the 1930s. Um, they, something of that in a slightly different form, admittedly, in the significantly titled uh, Ottaviano Capoparte, uh, which was published by Marco At uh, Mario Attilio Levi in 1933. And uh, that romanticism is certainly stripped away by sign already at the age of 20. For him, Octavianus is a chill and mature terrorist. And in the young time, he found somebody who was certainly a, a, a very mature historian already, but also actually a rather chill one. Uh, I was only a bit chill and mature myself when I, when I first read it. it. It's one of those books for me, I, we all got them, I think, uh, where I don't really remember. I, I remember reading. Um, I've got a very clear visual memory of sitting in the back garden of my family home in the summer of 1969, engrossed in reading it for the first time. And it was a good summer. Uh, Glamorgan even won the county championship. <laughs> yeah, really, really. <laughs> Hard to believe. But the other highlight was, in fact, reading Roman Revolution. You can see the state my undergraduate copy is in. Um, it's uh, so much fallen to bits that uh, I had to get another copy later on when I had to uh, use it a lot. And as I am being personal, just for a few minutes, um, a few more words on, on my own encounters with Syme. Uh, um, I never got to know him well. There are people in the room who knew him very much better. Uh, but he was kind to me. Uh, I must have met him about half a dozen times, I expect, in his final years. Uh, I was allowed as a, a fourth-year undergraduate to go to what must have been his final class, in fact, a uh, postgraduate class as a professor. I still have a card granting me that permission. Uh, wholly above my head, may I say. It was on ancient, ancient history. Um, the two things I remember were, were, first, that his notes for the talk were written on the back of old buttery bills, which uh, I thought was a bit odd, uh, but I later discovered was absolutely typical. Um, uh, and uh, secondly, that he talked very much as he wrote, which I thought was quite extraordinary, actually. Um, when I published one of my own first articles ten years later, he immediately sent me a letter within a few days. Um, uh, it said some nice things, which meant a lot, you know, a lot still, actually. Um, and still gently chided me. I think the phrase was, I, I also wondered what you think about. <laughs> it was one of the things that happened to interest him. Uh, it's a story in Plutarch of something in the Catalinarian debate of, of 63 BC. Uh, Cato, so we're told, so Plutarch says, challenged Caesar when he was seen to be reading a note that had just been brought into the Senate House. And Caesar didn't say anything. He just passed it back to Cato. It turned out to be a love letter from his half-sister, Sevilla. Uh, Cato hurled it back at him. Take it, you drunken oaf. And Sevilla uh, will come up a little later, which is why I, I mentioned this now. Uh, my most interesting meeting, though, happened 
nearly ten years later again, it must have been the year before he died, I think, uh, Peter Brown had very kindly invited me to a Trinity feast. And I found myself sitting next to Syme, and this was immensely lucky. I'd already contracted, or just contracted, in fact, to write the chapter in the revised Cambridge Ancient History on the triumviral period, which, of course, is very much the theme of at least the first half of the Roman Revolution. Uh, and I asked him uh, what he thought of the decision, the editorial decision, to put the breaking point between CAH 9 and CAH 10, uh, not at the death of Caesar, as it had been in the first edition, but as the death of Cicero, the 43 rather than 44. It was a really interesting decision, I think. It'll seem very interesting, I think, to historians of scholarship of the 20th century in due course. And, and I took it, one of the editors has confirmed this, as a mark away from doing the heavily political, military, to at least include a more intellectual perspective as well. I don't think Syme actually knew about that they'd had to take that change, had decided to do that change, but I asked him what he thought. Uh, and uh, he didn't see it that way at all in terms of intellectual history. Uh, his immediate response was to concentrate not on the end of Book 9, but at the beginning of Book 10, uh, Volume 10. I can see, he said, the point of a lex titia, late November 43, marked the beginning of absolute rule in Rome. Well, if that sentence uh, seems familiar to anybody with uh, a particularly good memory, and there's a good reason to that, I shamelessly stole it, in fact, uh, to be the first sentence of the chapter and, and therefore of a volume. Um, but it's a very interesting reflex, I think, uh, with that characteristic instinct of, uh, that he had for thinking in terms of the realities of power rather than of intellectual, or more at least, than of intellectual history. And that preoccupation with starting points is one that will come up later as well, both in his Tacitus, um, where he suggests that Tacitus really ought to have begun his annals um, ten years earlier than he did the, with late Augustus. Uh, and as we'll see, I think, in Roman Revolution as well. And there's another part to that conversation as well. Uh, a week or so before, he'd uh, given a talk to the Oxford Philological Society on his own recollections, and uh, he was characteristically evasive, in fact. He didn't mention, for instance, his uh, rather mysterious years as professor of Latin in Istanbul during the war. Uh, there's been a lot of speculation that whatever he was doing, it wasn't simply professing Latin. Um, uh, he himself says that he was, he'd been in government service, and uh, an interesting phrase in the letter in an OUP archive it said he was been fortunate to be in, in Istanbul during the war uh, where perhaps he had been of most use which is rather telling I think um, but in that talk he'd also said that if he were doing the Roman Revolution again he'd of course do it quite differently now just left it hanging moved on to, to something else um, for those two hours that night in Trinity, well, I had him there, he couldn't escape, uh, I could press him on what he'd meant by that. And he, he, he wasn't very enthusiastic to play that game, I think it's fair to say. But eventually he did say that he would have put uh, the important jump in the middle of that book from a continuous linear narrative of the triumviral period and the early years of Augustus's reign to a more thematic uh, development, more thematic treatment. He would have put that transition uh, four years different from where he had put it. He put it in 23 BC in the book itself. Uh, it wasn't quite clear what he meant four years earlier, 27 or four years later in 19, and actually both are possibles. Um, uh, in fact, looking at the book again, I think that perhaps rather surprisingly he meant later, but I couldn't, I think, get him to say that. But that was all he meant by that quite differently, and as quite different goes, it's not really as different as all that, I think. But we can say something about his rewriting um, or revisions, as uh, we do have in the Bodleian the original manuscript of what he initially called Augustus Leader and Party, Leader and Party. The title of the Roman Revolution was apparently suggested to him by OUP, and he liked it. He liked the alliteration, apparently. He didn't like the word revolution, though he uses a bit, a fair bit. Uh, but uh, Ronald, Roman, revolution, yeah, that'll do. That'll do nicely. Uh, and comparing the, uh, the, the manuscript with the final version is actually quite fascinating, and I, I've had many a happy hour in the last few weeks doing that. It's handwritten. It's in a more legible hand than the uh, later letters, including my own 
postcard and letter. It looks like a fair copy of a penultimate draft, in fact. It's written on the back, earlier handwritten pages, again, that same feature. Uh, some of which seem to be the footnotes for a 1937 paper on polio. Uh, but some are clearly earlier, scrappier versions of this same book. Um, I'll show you the, the contents pages. Um, there you are, Augustus Leader and Party. You can see the, the first half of the chapters and then the, the, the second half. And um, those of you with intimate knowledge of a book will immediately see something interesting. Let's go back to the first half, but also with the ones as they finally came out. Most of the chapter headings, chapter titles, are pretty well the same. Uh, one is called The Terror in that draft, more soberly The Prescriptions, uh, Proscriptions in the final version. And it may look as if a, uh, a, a chapter on Rome under the triumvirs is added, but that's, that's misleading. The chapter is actually there in the draft, but it's in uh, a separate pagination. It looks as if he wrote it and included it after he'd written out that contents page. But the big changes are all at the beginning, there, um, with expansion of a much shorter introduction and two numbered chapters in the draft to four chapters in the final version. And if one gets into the detail, looking at the manuscript itself, we see page after page added to those first few chapters, much greater fullness on the late Republican period, 50s, 40s, years of Caesar and Pompey, but actually even more on the 70s and 60s, going right back, even the 80s. Um, in his review of Roman Revolution in the Journal of Roman Studies for 1940, Arnaldo Mimiliano um, suggested that Syme ought to have begun in 78 rather than as Pollio had done in 60 BC. Uh, it basically should have started with the, the end of Sulla. And there are several draft papers that Syme wrote in the next few years that deal with the period shortly after Sulla, the 70s and 60s. And those papers are, in fact, now going to appear in, they're edited by Federico Sant'Angelo in an OUP volume, effectively Roman Papers 8, in fact, but it's going to be called Approaching the Roman Revolution. Uh, Anthony Burley has suggested that Syme's work on those papers was prompted by Mimiliano's review. And that's very plausible, I think. But one can also suggest that in the later stages of writing Roman Revolution itself, he was increasingly aware of a need to go further back. That explains the expansion in those early chapters. If Emiliano's review hit home, it was precisely striking it because it was striking at a spot where Syme was already uneasy, I think. And that's what I meant when I, I said, mentioned that preoccupation with starting points um, in that conversation at Trinity. In a way, indeed, uh, Mimiliano's point is overstated because so much of his early chapters in that final version do cover the 70s and 60s. That's what they're about, admittedly in less detail. And the choice of 60 as the nominal starting point uh, tends to look increasingly like gesture gesture towards Asinius Pollio. And as so often, uh, one should also think of Tacitus, particularly Syme's own Tacitus of 1958, who comes to realize too late that he should have started the annals a little earlier than he did. Nor is that the only case where we can uh, see some unease in the final, verse, final writing, later stages of writing, but chimes with points made by later reviewers. Um, already in this draft, as in the final version, he's impatient with the idea that political theory can drive conduct. It's a common belief, attested by the existence of political science as a subject of academic study, that the arts of government may be learned from books. The revolutionary career of Caesar's heir reveals never a trace of theoretical preconceptions. If it did, it would have been very different and very short. Oh, it's wonderful stuff. It's marvelous. Uh, but critics have often wondered if Syme ought to have spent a little more time on the ideas and the theories. And it looks as if he may have wondered it himself. A page and a half on Cicero's theorizing in De Republica and De Legibus uh, is added between the draft and the final version. And there are some other editions as well that follow a distinctive pattern. A lot concern women. Uh, and Servilia, yes, Servilia, she, again, the half-sister of Cato, she had that postcard to me in 1979, letter to me in 1979, uh, is several times the object of particular expansions. He once said, women have their uses for historians. 
Uh, very Simeon. Uh, I can hear him saying it. I don't think he'd get away with it these days. Um, and one can track his, his growing interest, indeed, in the usefulness of women, historically usefulness of women, even in those pages, I think. Uh, some of these pages are a good deal more rewritten than others. Um, I'll show you two to give an idea. That's, uh, sorry, wrong one. Um, that's one of the cleaner ones, in fact. It's, um, that was actually genuinely pretty well at random, but in fact I can see that it's, uh, it's polio figures, which is suitable enough. Uh, some are much more scrawled over with bubbles in the margins, extra additions, and so on. Um, and uh, some are also much more rewritten between the draft, as a, the whole of the draft, and the final version than others as well. Um, some of the most characteristic and famous chapters are, in fact, among the least rewritten. Political catchwords, for instance, uh, or many of the tense, really brilliantly written, fast-moving pieces of narrative. Also, though, perhaps more surprisingly, uh, some of the, what he called the, the uh, concatenations of proper names, those dense clusters of names in the thick prosopographical clusters. And there are signs, too, particularly in those chapters, uh, that he wrote at least parts of it from memory. At the beginning, for instance, of the political catchwords chapter, he relates a, a lurid story from Cicero, uh, in fact, a Provingius Consularibus, of virgins throwing them a, down a well in Thessalonica to avoid the lustful Piso. Well, no. <laughs> uh, in fact, it was in Byzantium, and that's corrected by the time of the, the final version. I dare say at the time he came to check the references to add the footnotes, which he often did later. It's known he did later, sometimes a long time later. Uh, and pleasingly for many who've made the same mistake, uh, including me, an implication in this draft that Brutus was a Stoic is also corrected, and the magic word academic is added in the, in the final version. Perhaps again, in fact, during that time, perhaps where he was boning up on Ciceronian philosophy, if I'm right. Um, and this page, the one that was up there at the moment, shows another feature, uh, the way that some of the most characteristic and, in some cases, even notorious sentences are the afterthought. There's a marginal addition there. Actually, it's clear. I'll, I'll put, put it on that to show you what it says. Um, it's about Varro, the aged Varro, the most learned of the Romans, the parent of knowledge and propagator of many errors. And then after this version, he also added in the final version, uh, the old scholar lacked style, intensity, a guiding idea. Uh, well, both the sentences I've several times seen quoted extremely indignantly bad, uh, by Varro Davites. You can almost sense him sort of rolling the aphorisms around to see what comes out best and particularly what's going to be most provocative. Uh, yes, that will do nicely. That will really annoy them. Um, uh, and the same is true of some of his other uh, most, most quoted uh, uh, phrases, what we might call his gems. That was a phrase, actually, that um, Alan Brook used of Churchill's gem. PM had a lot of gems over the brandy last night sort of stuff. Uh, and there are some similarities, I think. Um, it's one of Syme's stylistic quirks that these gems, um, if one thinks about them, if one's pedantic, are often ones that don't actually quite work in English, or rather shouldn't quite work. At least they push the language to its limits, shall we say. Um, for instance, Sulla could not abolish his own example. Well, abolish? Odd use of a word, isn't it? That's not, not quite what one would normally say. Heavily freighted, should we say, that word. Um, and in the original, in fact, it was suppress, and that's altered afterwards. Um, the foundations of a new order were cemented with the blood of citizen and buttressed with a despotism that made men recall the dictatorship of Caesar as an age of gold. That's a very fine sentence again. But let's bring in a pedant, let's bring in Varro, shall we say, off, uh, given the right of reply. Um, I'd have commented that you don't actually buttress a foundation, do you? Not very often. Um, and blood is extremely unlikely to make a very good cement. Um, and well, Varro being Varro, he probably came up with a very interesting case he'd heard about in Mauritania, shall we say. Um, uh, and there, uh, blood is in fact a superlinear addition in the manuscript, and the original is crossed out with sufficient vigor that you can't even read what it was. That Oh, blood will do nicely. And perhaps most of all, um, wonderful sentence, marking a, obviously a very important moment in the narrative. It's the first sentence of a chapter. Uh, Caesar lay dead, stricken by 23 wounds. It's a wonderful chapter opening. It's, uh, as I say, at an important place. Uh, the original was, as you see, Caesar lay dead in the Senate House, bleeding from 23 wounds. 
uh, in the Senate House is dropped with an advantage to the rhythm. Uh, the staccato Caesar lay dead uh, contrasts with the mayhem, the swift panicky movement that immediately follows. And stricken by 23 wounds, it's so much better than bleeding from. Yet, yet one reason is that you're, you're not struck by a wound, are you? you? You are in Latin, interestingly, but not in English. Vulnere uh, ectus is perfectly good Latin. What you are struck by in English, though, is a sword or a dagger in that case. Um, it's a very strain that language is put under, I think, that makes the style so remarkable. And I'm sure I'm not the only person here who's already thinking of Tacitus and uh, with the analogy there. Those stylistic oddities, quiddities uh, that Syme himself was to analyze in his book, two volumes on Tacitus 20 years later. Well, Tacitus again then, and uh, the first words of the Roman Revolution are the greatest of the Roman historians. There they are, referring to the way that Tacitus chose to begin the annals. And the manuscript, in fact, began differently with what's now the last paragraph of the first chapter. In the beginnings, kings ruled at Rome. In the end, as was fated, it came round to monarchy again. But that's Tacitus too, in a very typical Simian mode of just alluding to a passage, a famous passage without actually quoting it. And it is, of course, absolutely the first sentence, in fact, of Tacitus' annals, Urbem Rome a principio. Reges habuere. Job is done. Ghostly presence of Tacitus is immediately established, both at the beginning and at the end in the, as the first chapter. It doesn't need to be trowled in, in throughout. And it's interesting, too, and again, utterly typical that the footnote on that uh, in the beginning kings ruled at Rome passage refers to Appian, uh, leaves the Tacitian allusion totally unremarked, as it's as if it would be patronizing to point out something that the reader is expected not to need telling. And that silence is itself, I think, a way of, of building a sort of bond of knowingness. Knowingness is a word that will come up quite a lot, I think, between author and reader. I'll, I'll say more about that. And there is, of course, a different presence as well as Tacitus that's made more explicit, and that is that of Asinius Pollio, also heralded in that first chapter. It's, in fact, already there in the manuscript for what it's worth. That author, so sadly lost, whose fierce independence, his plain hard style, his pessimistic and truculent tone, Syme holds up as his own model. And that technique of advertising a predecessor is, of course, a very much an ancient characteristic as well, uh, with Sallust and Thucydides, Cassius Dye and Thucydides too, or of, indeed Tacitus himself and, and Sallust, or Celestius, as Syme would call him. Um, as it happens, Syme's picture of Pollio hasn't stood up very well. Uh, we'd be much more cautious these days about talking about the fierce independence and the, what he calls a brittle cynicism of style. We might be a bit more cautious about that as well. There's good reason to think of Pollio as decidedly less austere than that picture that, Pollio, that Syme paints of him. And it looks as if Pollio was responsible, for instance, for telling in, in, in highly dramatic tones of Caesar at the Rubicon, hesitating, wondering, shall I go forward, shall I step back, and eventually saying, let the die be cast. Um, and it's in the qualities of graphic, suspense, and so on, that Horace praises Pollio in Odes 2.1. And that dramatic qualities, I guess, is why Pollio would have chosen to start in 60 BC. It's a friendship of Caesar and Pompey that later develops into enmity and hatred. It gives so many opportunities, but it's a personal reading, concentrating on personalities, very different from those continuities of oligarchy and party and the forces behind the scenes that, that Simon wants to stress. Um, if there is that gesture to Pollio, that may be one of the reasons uh, for Simon coming to feel a little bit of unease about a starting point that didn't quite suit somebody who wanted to stress the continuities of history quite so much. But why does he do it? What does, what does Simon gain by this Pollio persona? It seems just an affectation to us, I suppose, so easily. Uh, Luke Picture, who's here, um, was, has written very interestingly about this in the context of a much later history in Ovid, and I, and I agree with him. Um, it's part of a way that Syme conveys the impression that judgments and interpretations are not just his own, they're ones that people made, or at least might have made, at the time. And Sir Fergus Miller has said something similar in the, the article that um, uh, Hermione was referring to. 
later in Tacitus, men must have said these things. Uh, Syme, again, a typical men. Um, uh, and he's talking there about the rather sceptical remarks of some observers at the funeral of Augustus. It's useful to have a flesh and bone person who can be made to, to save them, and that's Gaius Asinius Pollio, portrayed as the, the man who had no use for any party. He knew about them all. So it does reinforce that seen-it-all persona I was talking a little bit about earlier. Pollio genuinely had seen it all. And it's first cousin, perhaps, to that technique of elusive half-quotation we've already noticed uh, with uh, those gestures towards Tacitus, who might also have said these things. These days, as picture says, uh, we might talk of blurred focalization. Um, I don't think Miller put it quite like that. Um, uh, uh, a term that would have made Syme shudder as well, focalization. But it brings out the constructive vagueness of it all. Is it Syme speaking? Is it Tacitus? Is it Pollio? Or, example I'm going to take now, it's, is it Horace? And the technique is very skillful. Let me take this particular example from Horace. It's another passage, incidentally, that's added in a, a bubble in the margin of a manuscript. Quo quo scelesti ruitis, another, yet another criminal war between citizens, was being forced by mad ambition upon the Roman people. In this atmosphere of terror and alarm, Octavianus resolved to secure national sanction for his arbitrary power and a national mandate to save Rome from the menace of the East. Well, quo quo scelesti ruitis, it's a, a quotation, of course, from Horace's seventh epode. But what about the next sentence? It's made to look as if he's continuing the quotation, or at least a paraphrase, moving from direct speech into uh, free and direct discourse, as we might say in the trade these days. And um, that would make Sam shudder again. Um, and another, yet another, that mannerism, that suggests as much as well. It's continuing that quo, quo. It does indeed reflect what the seventh epode is, is all about, tracing this war back to all its antecedents, all the way back to Romulus and Remus, in fact. And there's probably a bit of a whiff of the 16th epode as well, uh, Altera Yam Territor Bellis Kiwilibus Aitas. But, but criminal, criminal war, well, that is in the seventh epode as well, but not about this war, that's back to Romulus and Remus, in fact, Scellus Fraternae Neces. It's not about Octavian, who's got most of the blame in Syme's narrative. And mad ambition? Well, furor is there in the epode, uh, but not only is one of the possible explanations, and not ambition. Ambition is, again, the keynote of what Syme has been saying, not what Horace is saying. It's an Octavian-shaped point. Now, Syme could doubtless have responded, but he's simply teasing out what Horace was too sensible to say outright, uh, was sensible enough not to say. And maybe that's right, but we can at least see that at least he's sharpening the point, making it fit his themes much more accurately, and in a way he's actually doing what Syme would later analyse Tacitus as doing when he improves upon the speech of Claudius on, on Roman citizenship, the one we happen to have preserved on a Leon tablet. Tacitus, he said, strengthens and supplements it. That's what he's doing there. And if one's talking focalization, uh, one, we, can, we can go into narratological overdrive if we want. Uh, we can point out that arbitrary mandate, mandate, whose voice is that? That's Syme. Um, but the menace of the East, it's Octavian's voice. Or rather, given the strong personal slant we've already got, it, it's Horace's strings. Uh, it, it's, it's Horace. Um, Horace safe and subsidized at Rome. And Octavian uh, behind the scenes pulling Octavian's string, uh, pulling Horace's strings. Sorry. They all merge into one another, as I say. Uh, and Syme there raising a cynical eyebrow at the whole business. So we've got primary, secondary, and tertiary focalizers all in those few words. He really does know a thing or a trick or two, does the young Syme here. And he doesn't need the narratological theory to tell him how to do it uh, any more than the young Octavian needed to learn the art of politics from books. Now let's take a further passage, uh, one where the whiff of Tacitus is again strong, and Syme is talking about the piece of Brundisium in 40 BC. It, a typical piece of virtual history, and in fact, he, he likes thinking about what might have happened but didn't. It's very important to him. It might not have happened. The armed confrontation of the angry dynasts at Brundisium portended a renewal of warfare, prescriptions and the desolation of Italy, a victor certain to be worse than his defeated adversary, destined to follow him before long to destruction, and then Rome repaying Alexander and so on. 
And he goes on to quote Horace again, this time 16th Epode, and that confirms that this piece of counterfactual history is intimating not just Syme's own assessment, but again the views and fears of observers at the time, another piece of blurred focalization. And little touches go the same way, I suppose, like that portended, portended, where is it, um, uh, portended to whom, that's something at the time, uh, and certain to be, not who would have been worse, but certain to be. Again, it looks as if it's a piece of prognosis, a contemporary anticipation, rather than a later retrospect. But the passage will also suggest to the knowledgeable observer something else, and that's um, Histories 150, um, particularly that phrase, uh, um, uh, somebody, uh, the victor who's bound to be the worse than the... Uh, certain to be worse than the defeated adversary. That's where Tustus traces the nervous apprehension of the cities as war is about to break out again in, after, um, after Galba's murder. Vitellius is on the move. A war in which you would know only one thing, that the worst man was going to be the one who had won. And this is another case where there, there's no footnote to help. Whatever else is going on here, uh, it's rather what I was saying earlier, I think it creates a sort of bond of knowingness that's itself part of a rhetoric, I think. You and I, reader, we both know the material so well that a nod is as good as a footnote, as it were. Um, I won't insult you by telling you what you already know. Uh, intertextuality, well, how about that? Now, there's another word that uh, would have scored high on the, the Syme shudderometer, I suppose. Uh, perhaps, indeed, we don't need it. Um, in terms of a distinction between intertextuality and illusion developed by Stephen Hines, for instance, this is good old-fashioned illusion. Uh, the author's hand and personality is sensed. Um, even, this is where others, not Syme, would shudder, even the author's intention, I think. And that's part of a bond of knowingness. We, we understand one another, author and reader. But a, a thought experiment, what I'd like to do in the next few minutes, is, is to see what we would do with this if we were, were talking about an ancient author. Uh, we'd say, I think, that the passage was, yes, summoning up thoughts of AD 69 and all that. So looking forwards to what was going to come, as well as backwards to Alexander and to the prescriptions, and that was itself contributing to its persuasiveness. If that was going to be the way that people were going to be thinking a hundred years later, that makes it more likely that they'd be thinking the same now. And if that outbreak of civil war did indeed happen a hundred years later, that makes the fears that it would happen now all the more plausible as well. And we might say also that for a writer like this, so... So concerned to stress the continuities in Roman history, this is another one, not just the perpetual presence of an oligarchy, but the perpetual danger of a civil war when the oligarchy falls out, the way civil wars are so often all the same. Several times, after all, Syme quotes uh, Thucydides on Corsaira, wars, particularly civil wars, that will recur as long as a human condition remains the same, though in different forms. Well, so far, so good, one might say, using a Simian phrase. Uh, we might think that he's making a bit of a meal, to, to tell all that, making a bit of a meal of it all. Uh, but I think we might accept those as either fair comments or at least implications that Simon himself wouldn't resist. The elusiveness, in other words, is helping the argument. There are other passages, too, that suggest how the, the lineaments of the Principate are taking form, and not just for Augustus, but for a hundred years to come. But how far should we go? Let's take another passage. Um, it's evident that res publica constituta, or libertas restituta, lend themselves as crown and consecration to any process of violence and usurpation. And that's another case, I think, where one might wonder if a metaphor quite works, actually. Uh, crown and consecration? Never mind. It certainly draws attention to itself. But uh, there's an oddity in, in the Latin words as well as in the English, in fact, though it's rather hard, you need to know quite a lot to, to, to spot it. Uh, res publica constituta, well, that presumably e echoing the, the designation of the big three as triumviri re publicae constituendi. But what of libertas restituta? That's not a phrase that, as far as we know, at least as far as I know, uh, was used at the time. Uh, and in fact, in the manuscript, the Syme originally wrote the much more authentic Libertatis Windex, and he altered it to Libertas Windicata, but then altered it again before the final version to uh, this rather less familiar phrase, uh, Libertas Restituta. 
Uh, perhaps it's simply echoing that also that other familiar phrase, res publica, restituta, and sort of moving it across from, he's using constituta, but let's have restituta anyway. But perhaps there's more to it, because libertas restituta does actually become a key phrase, but not now. It becomes a key phrase in 69, again, 68 and 69. It's used on the coinage of Galba and again of Vitellius. It's used again uh, after the death of Domitian and the reign of Nerva. So is this a further intimation, but a much subtler one, of a, uh, of a way that similar ideas, techniques, catchwords would be in the air a hundred years later? Well, the general way it's put, not just lent themselves, but lend themselves. It's the sort of thing that always happened. Again, there's no footnote, but that's typical. Um, and if that's, but if that's right, well, that's a lot more arcane, isn't it? That would be certainly one for, for the pokey et prudentes. I mean, even this audience, I wonder how many people would have picked that up. Still, it's not too far from the subtleties that these days uh, we'd be prepared to accept for sophisticated ancient authors and not worry too much. Perhaps I'll even ask ourselves how, what proportion of their readership would really get that point. Well, how far should we go, indeed? There are other non-Tacitian allusions. Uh, one of his choice words comes in the context of early 43 BC and the manoeuvrings before the Battle of Mutina. Such was the situation towards the end of March. The efforts of diplomacy, honest or partisan, were alike exhausted. The arbitrament now rested with the sword. Arbitrament. That's not a word you hear used down the pub very often. Um, and uh, like many of his, his mannered utterances, it's, a rather, a, it's got rather a 19th century ring, in fact. It was actually used quite a lot in contemporary uh, newspaper headlines and things during the American Civil War. And uh, much later, in fact, there's a scrap, Federico Santangelo tells me, of a manuscript of Syme um, comparing the American Civil War and the Social War. It's a short scrap. It's, it already may be an interest. But, but already in the 19th century, it's in fact, a quotation, as many of you will already, I think, be recognizing. Um, uh, it goes back to Shakespeare, uh, who uses the word in several passages, but most markedly in the passage of Henry V. Uh, the king there is talking to Williams. There's no king. Be his cause never so spotless. If it comes to the arbitrament of swords, so it's not merely arbitrament, but sword as well, can try it, all out, uh, try it out with all unspotted soldiers. Well, were this an ancient author, we'd be gathering here like intertextual vultures, wouldn't we? Um, it's not just the hard-nosed realism of the battlefield that's relevant with these tough veterans, none of them unspotted. Uh, the point of be his cause never so spotless is that Williams has been claiming that a king carries particular responsibility if his cause is not a good one. If we do remember that original context, well, we'd be saying that Simon's passage summons up those associations, the way that ancient intertextuality is so often supposed to be doing, uh, and this is a cause which for Syme is anything but unspotted on a battlefield where similar hardened veterans will be fighting it out. And if a uh, reference to the American Civil War is allowed as well, we might start talking very trendily about window references or window allusions. We'd be sensing the Civil War, we'd be sensing the Shakespeare through it, and then the Civil War, we could get the Thucydidean suggestion that civil wars are the worst, and they're none too different from one another in different ages and different cultures. But should we do that? Uh, should we just say, say that Syme just like the phrase, thought it's grand, yet suitable to mark the importance of a moment? Uh, he, in fact, uses the word arbitrament again in one of the last paragraphs of Augustan Aristocracy 50 years later, nearly 50 years later, and in a quite different context. We can't play those games, I think. Um, we could take a lily-livered in-between line and say that Syme may well have had inklings of such associations, but deep in his subconscious. But I, I think Syme himself might not have been too sympathetic to that sort of long-distance psychoanalysis. Um, however, but however far we go, uh, I dare say it will be conceded that we tend to approach ancient authors and this modern one in a perceptibly different way. And I think that might be thought-provoking. So what? Well, we could go several ways here. Uh, if this were an undergraduate lecture, I'd, I think I'd introduce um, three people in an undergraduate tutorial. It's funny how often one of them begins with A, one of them begins with B, and then you get the real smarty pants who begins with C. Uh, let's have Arabella. Arabella comes first. Arabella would be the most sceptical. 
Um, she doesn't believe a word, really, of all this stuff about sign. Uh, she might just about believe some of the history's points, but thinks that's, that's really making too much of a meal of it, but wouldn't go any further. But thinks that that might well make us uh, rather sceptical about what we do with the ancient authors as well. Um, you people always talking about intertextuality, you're just over-interpreting fantasies, aren't you? Bertram. Uh, what will Bertram say? Bertram goes quite the other way. Um, uh, if it works for an ancient author, why shouldn't it work for Syme as well? Intertextuality may not have been theorized yet. Kristeva hasn't come along yet. Uh, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. We've already seen focalization being worked by Syme in a masterful way long before Jeanette and before, before de Jong's even born. Uh, Clarissa. Uh, Clarissa, she's the most inclined to say that, so what, with, with some edge. Um, if we approach modern and ancient authors with, uh, differently, perhaps we're right to do so. Uh, the best argument for, for an intertextual approach to ancient authors is simply that it works. There are quite a lot of mutually reinforcing studies, shall we say, uh, that make each one of them more plausible. Uh, we don't go that way with Syme until there's better evidence that this was the way that he or others were expecting works to uh, function in 1939 as well. I do wish we all had clickers at this point, and you could, you could press A, B, or C. Um, uh, uh, looking around, I think my private guess would be a pretty well a three-way tie, actually, between those, but, uh, well, more of this later. Um, over drinks, I hasten to say, rather than uh, anything else. Uh, well, how far should we go? Uh, let me use the last ten minutes, if I might, uh, to, to ask the same question about a, a different phenomenon. Uh, Zwei Abbott once commented on Syme's blurring of all personal characteristics of Pompey and Caesar, Antonius and Octavian. They're all cannily trying to read each other's minds, second-guess one another, all trying to seek, uh, trying to exploit the same forces uh, for more or less the same ends, basically their own power in ruthless ways that are, again, similar. And there's something in that, I think. Um, though Antony, actually, Antonius, may be a partial exception. His way is more open and loyal. He's more reluctant to let a friend down. Though I should also say there's no question of bringing any love for Cleopatra into the, the analysis. All that's just a matter of party propaganda. Uh, actually, it's quite interesting uh, uh, the way he underlines that point as well. Uh, the fact that Antony and Cleopatra uh, produced twins, Cleopatra particularly produced twins, about ten months after that famous first meeting, the barge she sat on, uh, isn't mentioned at all in that context. Um, it's delayed and mentioned much later when it becomes part of the propaganda, as that's when it becomes important. That's an absolutely characteristic ancient technique, that of narrative delay, which again has been theorized, analyzed a lot more since, uh, markedly by Edward Frankel in an appendix 11 years later in his Agamemnon commentary. But okay, there's something in all this um, that a lot of these characters do think in the same way. Again, it's alleviated by the, the wonderful one-liners that Syme so often uses to characterize some of the, the, the host of minor characters that crowd the stage, um, often actually if one looks at them carefully going a little way beyond the ancient evidence. But, but all this similarity um, is perhaps part of a larger point, the way that events and sequences, um, not just patterns of motive and behavior, are recurrent. We do often feel that the same things are happening again. Caesar crossing the Rubicon in 49 is not as different as one would think for Syme uh, from Pompey coming back in 62 or 61. If Pompey disbanded his troops and Caesar didn't, that's not a matter of Pompey's different personality. It's a matter of the different political exigencies of the two times. Um, if Octavian is masking effectively a coup d'etat uh, by a lot of uh, disingenuous moral rhetoric in 33, 32, as we're moving towards the Actium campaign, that's pretty well the same as what Cicero was doing, pretty well described in the same language even as what Cicero was doing during the Philippics uh, ten years earlier. And um, what the uh, talk of Antony's very elaborate, very un-Roman uh, final plans, including moving the capital eastwards, being buried himself at Cleopatra's side. Why? Uh, that wonderful phrase, a fabricated concatenation of unrealized intentions, may be logical, artistic, and persuasive, but it is not history. 
any more than Caesar's alleged plans deserved any credence under his dictatorship. What is it? Again, no statement of unrealized intentions, the same phrase. Well, we often find such recurrent patterning in ancient authors too, but there we tend to criticize it differently, I think, again. Uh, with Syme, the tendency is to make it a point, and usually a critical point, a negative point, be it said, about him, not, not about his text, <laughs> to put it biographically, one might say, with relation to its mindset. That's the way that Yavetz put it, though not an unfriendly way. That's the way, in this decidedly unfriendly way, Mamiliano put it as well, uh, pointing out that all Syme's figures um, uh, seem unmistakably redolent of one person in, per in particular, and that's Syme himself. Um, that's not meant in a kind way. Indeed, in the context of Emiliano's review, he's using it to make a positive point about Wallbank, uh, Frank Wallbank, whose treatment of Polybius's characters is for Emiliano so much better. Uh, but with ancient writers, we're much more sympathetic. Um, if we find, say, Herodotus reprising several aspects of Darius's invasion of Scythia when Xerxes invades Greece, we don't say, oh, God, Herodotus, he's really a Johnny One note, isn't he? Is he can't he play a different tune? Um, we're inclined to think that's part of his point, that there's something about autocracy, that he imposes a similar pattern of behavior on each autocrat in turn, reproducing similar mistakes and and perhaps dissimilar catastrophes, perhaps going right back to Cyrus indeed. Uh, within Tacitus himself, if there's a pattern that reasserts itself, as many have noticed, uh, at the time of the accession of Nero, which looks terribly similar to the death of Augustus and the accession of, of Tiberius, then that can be made expressive too. There's something we might pretentiously say in the pathology of a principate. Indeed, I pretentiously said it myself in lectures often enough. Uh, but, uh, but what happens when a princeps dies, ensuring, for instance, that the powerful widow of a dead ruler has a recurrently critical role to play. So the way the world works, in other words, is portrayed sometimes through specific explicit analysis, but much more often through recurrent patterning, showing rather than telling, uh, leaving it to the reader to do a fair part of the work. Well, once it's put like that, well, we might, might be prepared to do something of the same with Syme, allow something of the same. I think Bertram and Clarissa would at least, Arabella would hmm, have her doubts still. And sometimes, indeed, Syme makes it explicit. It's he that draws a parallel and denies the differences between Pompey and Caesar, for instance. Um, even more interesting, uh, before that remark about a fabricated concatenation of unrealized intentions, in the original manuscript, there's also the phrase, as with Julius Caesar, so with Antonius. He gets rid of that before the final version, as if that would be making the point too obvious. It's patronizing to introduce that. Some work, indeed, does have to be left to the reader to do. But again, how far should we go? Um, if Yavetz had put it to Syme, uh, perhaps he did, I don't know. His point about the interchangeability of his characters, what would Syme have said? I would hate to think what he would have said to Emiliano, but let's not go there. Um, uh, would, would Syme have been discountenanced? Uh, or would he have said, precisely, now that's a point and you've seen it. There were rules of a game. These people understood how the world worked. They knew what they had to do. Syme was never one to reject what he called rational conjecture. It reaches its height in the, the later works, uh, most spectacularly in a passage of that um, unfinished biography of Caesar, perhaps, where he reconstructs the guest list for the, the dinner on the night before the Ides of March. This doesn't quite go as far as the menu, but, you know, he's working in that way. Um, in Roman Revolution, uh, the rational conjecture often concerns those motives and plans, that canny strategic planning, the second guessing, the trying to outwit all the other schemers. Uh, I don't think, actually, Simon would thank me for it, but there's a very interesting parallel with Cassius Dio here, who also loves motives, and one could often say more or less the same things, I think. Uh, but I already here, I think, the, the point that uh, Peter Wiseman, who's also here, makes about the later points of uh, works has purchase, I think. Um, Syme feels, in Peter's words, he's earned the right to reconstruct those motives because he understands these people so well. He understands how their world works. He understands that, that they understand it too. It's another brand of knowingness, in fact that he knows, they know, we all understand this world. And I think it's also particularly infectious. It's um, hard to resist. It's part, again, of the rhetoric of a Roman revolution. I'm nearly finished, but let's not leave these recurrent patterns quite yet. 
as it's worth remembering what Syme himself went on to say about one of them when he went on to write his Tacitus. That striking similarity I've talked about between the accession of Tiberius and the death of Claudius, the accession of Nero. What interested Syme most, at least by that stage, was a further similarity, one to Tacitus' own times and to the accession of Hadrian. And that played an important point, in fact, in his argument, that the annals were written under Hadrian rather than late Trajan. Now, as it happens, that suggestion hasn't worn well. Never mind that for the moment. Uh, it also makes us think about how far Syme's own recurrent patterning of characters and events mirrors his own contemporary predicament. That ruthless self-interested canniness, the unscrupulous propaganda, the national programs and so on, the driving power politics, all evoking the world of the 30s. Probably Mussolini, I think, actually, more than Hitler. And that's not, of course, a, a remotely new suggestion. It was one made immediately at the time in, for instance, uh, Maurice Bauer's review in The Spectator just a month after publication. Syme himself, I think, others will correct me, but he, he rather disliked it, but that's understandable. None of us really likes to be classified so much as children of our times as, as to locate someone like that, to locate ourselves like that, or anybody else like that. It's so easy to disarm. You know, he would say that, wouldn't he? So we needn't take it so seriously. But still, it's not as if Syme himself resists gestures in that direction. It's not being composed in tranquility, he says in the preface. Maybe helpful, though, I think, to make it a point not just about author, as most of the treatments do, but also about audience and their expectations, their experiences that they're bringing to the reading experience. Um, when an aggressor is constitutionally in the wrong, for instance, the case has to be made in terms of a bogus morality. This is a context, again, of 33 to 32. But just as it always does, the situation and the phraseology recur in the history of war and politics. Whenever there's a public opinion worth persuading or deceiving, you know, reader, what I'm talking about. We're talking about our own times as well. And a little later, when an official document records voluntary manifestations of um, popular sentiment under a despotic government, a certain suspension of disbelief may safely be recommended. Too true. So not composed in tranquility, indeed, but not read in tranquility either. It's another sort of knowingness, in fact, when it appeals to the audience's awareness that such things recur, and they've seen them. It's a way, it's a real-life equivalent of intertextuality, or what I've been calling intertextuality. Textually, the analysis carries more conviction because Tacitus said something similar of events a hundred years later. The same things happened. In real life, reader, you can believe me because you know such things happen. You'd be prepared to say the things well. You, as well. You've seen, you've heard them in reality, in, in chattering terrifying reality. So this is, a, once again, not just a point about Syme's biography, how he came to think like that, but it's a, a point about his rhetoric as well, how the book contrives, and has always contrived, to be so extraordinarily persuasive. Well, not but what, it may well be a point about his biography too. I suppose it's ironic, but so much of what I've been saying has more than a tinge of a biographical a person, this person who so fiercely protested his own privacy of all, as many people know. Uh, he was reluctant to use I or me. He called it the odious pronoun. Uh, in conversation, he preferred to talk about this person all the time. Uh, and the person who so loved venting his wrath against biography. But I, well, that's no coincidence with somebody whose own voice is so distinctive, who so projects his personality through his reading, that creative work, cre creative work in progress, Eintritt verboten, this is the creative work that's there. And a death of the, a death of the author approach was, was never going to work with this particular author. This man who, in his own writings on Tacitus Salus in particular and others, was so keen to relate their text to their own life experience. And I've so often found myself, in looking at that manuscript in these last few weeks, uh, feeling myself very much in touch uh, with a mind, not just a text as it's forming there. Uh, it must indeed be the way that biographers often feel. That, uh, her mind is written about so well. But all that's pretty ancient as well. Um, one feels the same projection of a distinctive personality with so many texts and authors of ancient historiography. I think it's a genre where the fashionable narrator-author distinction really does fit, um, break down. Uh, not just the ones who have an intellectual affinity with Syme, Tacitus, Thucydides perhaps, but also Herodotus, Sallust, Polybius, and, coined a phrase, even Livy. 
Um, yes, we are dealing with a very strong uh, authorial presence, though that doesn't always make the author straightforward to understand. And at the end, I'm not even totally sure myself whether I'm an Arabella or a Bertram or, or, or a, a Clarissa. Probably, I suppose, I'm at heart a Bertram, but with worrying Clarissa tendencies in her. Uh, not for nothing, said Syme, did the Emperor Augustus choose for his signet ring the emblem of the Sphinx, enigmatic and elusive. He could well have done the same himself, this emperor of Roman history, as uh, Glenn Bowersock called him in 1980 in the New York Review of Books, with an illustration to uh, match. If I can will it come up. Oh, come on. Wrong one. There we go. Yes. Um, <laughs> dramatic pause. As Syme might have put it himself, the historian and the dynast understood each other all too well. Thank you. Well, I'm very struck by that sign creative work in progress and then that's the, the bit that follows it no entry here the entry was welcomed in this wonderfully vivid thoughtful uh, and engaging talk I felt in spite of the uh, antipathy to biography that kind of that we started with which went through like, like a theme we were being led quite brilliantly uh, into the mind the intellect the very choice of words, the rhetorical slate of hand of the legendary scholar whose memory we are marking tonight. Chris made us understand the creative work that went to construct Syme's great book, and in doing so, gave us a beautiful example of his own scholarly creativity and his elegant and exemplary way of opening out from extraordinarily sharply observed detail to larger questions, important questions of how we read ancient and critical texts. This certainly did have style, intensity and a leading idea. As he said himself earlier on, there will be, I'm sure, more discussion over drinks upstairs, which you are all very, very welcome to. But please, before you go, please give Chris Pelling another very strong vote of thanks. Thank you very much. <laughs>